Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We've been hanging out a whole lot this calendar year in the Gospel of Luke. Today actually marks our last Sunday in this Luke series, and we're going to focus on the Last Supper. You might think, well, that's kind of strange because this is the start of the Holy Week. We're just getting to crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, really big deal stuff in the life of the church. But we will get back to that because Holy Week is going to be around the corner. But in case you didn't know, Advent starts next week already. And so we're actually going to have this beautiful moment be the close of our focus of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we'll hit back into this story again um, in a chronological manner um, as we get closer to Holy Week, which I can't believe I'm even talking about that yet. So this is our last week in Luke. Um, And I just want to thank you, those of you who have been here for a while and have been going along. I just really feel like a sense of engagement to go deep into a passage, but also to be learning what that means to follow in the way of Jesus in our everyday lives. And I think that this story can often be really familiar to us. And so we talk about it every single week as a church, as we uh, partake in communion. And so sometimes we can get lost in some of the details. So let me just back up for a second. And if you're newer here, that's great as well. Let me just tell you and remind us quickly how it is that gospel accounts work. The New Testament, uh, the Christian part of the scriptures, there's the ancient scriptures of the Israelites. That's what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament is the story as the early church has responded to the life and ministry of Jesus, the documents of um, learning how to be the church, to respond to this good news. And the start of the New Testament is four gospel accounts, which are uh, Uh, stories that have been gathered by word of mouth by people who witnessed them. Four different authors decided, wow, time is going by. Jesus hasn't come back yet. We should write what we're hearing about for the church to get passed on to those who aren't hearing these stories firsthand anymore. And so you'll notice Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have all written accounts of the life, ministry, and teaching of Jesus. And some of the nuance of their stories are different. And that can feel frustrating unless we remember this as sort of what happens, pick four people in this room. We all went to a wedding together and I pick four of you in a couple of years to write a detailed account. And you would know, maybe some of you would emphasize one piece of the ceremony that meant a lot to you or the order might be a little different for one of you. And so what we do is we take the gospel accounts in a moment like this and we notice All four gospel writers talk about this meal. That's our first indication that this is a very, very big deal in the trajectory of the story of the account of Jesus Christ. So we know it's a big deal. Uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. And John, who's our kind of our poet, poetic gospel writer. Um, He takes a little bit of a different take on it. He focuses not as much, not on the bread and cup, but instead on this moment where uh, Jesus washes the feet at this meal of his disciples. And so the focus of John is different, but the meal is accounted in John 13. So that's all four gospels. We're going to stay rooted in Luke, but we want to lean into the broad strokes of all four gospel accounts. And when we do that, we see a shared pattern among all of them. We learn that Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. We do not know why. We don't know his motivations, but Jesus isn't shocked. Jesus is the one who 
is reporting that this betrayal will happen. So it seems to be in line. He's not trying to stop it. He's just saying, one of you is going to betray me. He accepts it. He knows it. He seems to accept that it's in line with God's plan for what is to come. So Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Then a meal is shared. And we get the, and for all of them, the location is Jerusalem. The time is Passover. Get back to that. And in this meal, Jesus takes the bread and the cup and he instructs the disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Share this meal in remembrance of me. And then the third broad stroke thing that we hear is that Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him. These broad stroke movements are the same in all of the accounts. And so we're going to take our broad stroke sandwich and we see betrayal, big deal meal, denial. That's our sandwich for the morning that we are going to keep because all of them agree. Let's put our sandwich into context. Jerusalem at Passover. This is not accidental. Luke has been very clear in his gospel for a long time. There's a momentum that's been building. Of course, we're taking little bits each week, but I keep saying it's really important. Keep it in context. Sit and read all of Luke, and you'll notice that I think it's around chapter 9, the momentum starts to go towards Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem, and you start to feel this, this is the goal. We're going towards this place. And of course, Jerusalem at this time in Jewish history, it was the location of the holy temple of God. There was a pilgrimage to worship the holiest of holies. The ark has come to finally find rest on this holy hill in Jerusalem. And so many, many faithful Jews would take regular pilgrimage to go to this place, especially at a time like Passover. And so the city would swell to multiple times its normal size. I think of, um, we go down a lot to Millennium Park, that whole Grant Park area. Our kids uh, both go to school down there. So I pass by Grant and Millennium Park all the time. And then sometimes it's Taste of Chicago or Lollapalooza. I'm like, this is altogether a different place. As swarms of humanity, businesses prop up, opportunities, uh, um, you know, police presence, all of this. It is a concentration of humanity that is kind of bigger, busting at the seams. That's Jerusalem at uh, Passover during this holy celebration. So let's talk about Passover for just a couple of minutes. Many of us have heard the story in the Exodus. It's one of the most I think it might be the most mentioned pivotal story that marks the people of God in all of scripture, Old Testament and new. It's this moment where the people of God, the Israelites have become enslaved in Egypt. And God says he has heard their, heard their cries and he sends Moses to go in and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And Moses is like, I really mean it. And Pharaoh's like, okay, maybe. And Moses is like, great, here we go. And Pharaoh's like, nope, I changed my mind. And they do this 10 times with 10 different, uh, our scripture renders it plagues. If you want to learn more, I'm going to quote Bible Project later. You guys, they are doing an amazing Old Testament podcast series right now. Go and listen. I listened yesterday to the explanation of the 10 plagues. No time for that today. Super rich stuff. It's a really big, well-known story, though, that is deep in the cultural mind of this people. Um, when we, those of you who are Americans or whatever, are been in America a while, go towards Thanksgiving, we've got like a fraction of this towards the whole turkey bit. This is like so much bigger, so many more hundreds of years, so much like huge cultural moment with imagery that matters a whole, whole lot. 
And the last plague was the, an angel of death who had come and uh, take the firstborn of every family. And this is to mirror the moment that Pharaoh was killing the firstborn of all the Israelites by throwing them in the river. And so uh, the angel of death is going to come. The people of God are told, but you will be spared if you take a perfect lamb, take it into your home for a few days, tend to it. And when you sacrifice that perfect lamb, put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and the angel of death will pass over your home. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. Okay, we're leaving Exodus. The first time I went to a Seder dinner, Seder means order, and uh, it's the Passover dinner. My friend Amanda is uh, Jewish, and I actually texted her because this was like, I was 13 or something at the time. And I was like, will you remind me? Because I know I did it all wrong, you guys. I was just, I was not doing it right. But we sat down at this dinner at Grandma Dorothy's, and the first thing they do is they hand you these deeply symbolic uh, food items. There were um, eggs to symbolize rebirth. Have you ever tried to eat a hard-boiled egg in a social setting? It's really awkward, you guys. Then there's bitter herbs. There's parsley. Um, let me see if I... Parsley means spring and rebirth. You dip it in salt water to represent rebirth and tears of the slaves can commingle. There's all these deeply symbolic... But you guys, I thought that was the meal. And I was raised that you're supposed to eat whatever you're given when you're a guest. So I'm eating like bitter herbs and parsley and hard-boiled eggs. And it's, oh my gosh. And I was like, what is this? They're all laughing at me because I'm like the Christian little teen at the part, and they're so sweet. And then they bring out the most epic feast. Like I still have never had brisket like that in my life. And we share in this plentiful, beautiful feast. And Grandma Dorothy's an amazing cook. But what we see in this, have you guys ever been to one of those? Actually, this is a great week to talk about it. Sometimes you make dinner, you go through all this work and like your roommates or your family swoop through, eat everything. And seven minutes later, the kitchen's empty except for dirty dishes. You know those meals. But then there are the meals when someone brings up a great topic and you just linger. Hopefully Thanksgiving is one of those kind of things, but you just stay and never mind the dishes and you stay for another course and another round of pie. You linger and we see that they are having a feast and Jesus is reclining at the table. Take that posture and think of that meal when the briskets come out, right? I didn't need to just eat those eggs. It was so much better coming. But this meal, this moment, deep, deep in the Jewish imagination of what its symbolic symbol uh, uh, means, all of this means, has caused Christians, this Last Supper, taking of the Seder dinner, has caused Christians so much debate over the years. I'm going to acknowledge that. Uh, Judas and Peter, what about predestination versus free will? Well, there's a box of conversation to have. Or what about um, the bread and the cup? Is it symbolic? Is it real presence? We're not going to get into any of that. I'm going to just tell you right offhand, those are important conversations. They're really rich. They're really good. They're not at all what I want to talk about today. So there's deep, deep stuff here. The thing that we see in how much debate there's been over this meal is clearly, you guys, this meal is such a big deal. It is pivotal for the Christian mindset in this moment. And so I want us to carry this sandwich, our sandwich, with that kind of broad stroke big dealness. Because the meat of the sandwich, the bread in the cup, the in-between of the sandwich, is this formative Passover meal. Uh, again, from the Bible Project, we know in this meal we regularly participate in praise, thanksgiving, remembrance, and repentance. And through years of practice, 
The feasts helped to form the people of Israel into a grateful, believing, and trusting community who shares in God's goodness in life. Repeat this meal. Be formed cyclically for all of your life in the truth of who God is, right? And it's much more than just a mental reminder. See, feasts engage the senses. We just did our embodied worship, right? You taste, you see, you smell, you feel. The whole person is brought in to this reminder of God's covenant fulfillment of promises made by God, the one who gave true life. And that happened in the Passover moment, the original Exodus moment, and... Passover also reminds people every single year that it will happen again. And when that future promise, that someday promise of God comes to pass, how is it described? I grabbed my NRSV just by chance um, in case you have a different version. Isaiah 25, starting in six, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain, remember the mountain, uh, Israel, the holy temple, like this this is the mountain. He will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So what we have in this Passover meal, remember when the passage that Kelly just read, Jesus starts talking about, I will not do this again until I'm in the kingdom. I just butchered that. But he's talking about future kingdom here too. This is drawing this passage up. This promise is like cling to it. God did it before. So this Passover, remembrance backwards. God did this before. But it's also clinging to promise forwards. The promise still to come. And it's clinging to both. This future liberation will come. And in this moment, when Jesus is doing this feast, remember, they are not a liberated people. They are living under the Roman Empire rule in their city of Jerusalem. And so we feel that pressure. So the future, we, we were in what God had done, promise, covenant promise that was fulfilled what God would do again, that freeing work, that feast, and it also is having us look and see something is happening now in Jesus. Like all of these uh, cues are coming up in our cultural imagination that this is a really important moment. They probably think that this is a really important cultural moment to free us from the Roman Empire. Maybe that's the liberation that's to come. Well, of course, that's their context. That would make all kinds of sense to think that. But we um, are seeing that Jesus is doing something. And this is a piece that I hadn't caught before. I love this, this sitting in scripture every week. And sometimes even after years of a story, there's something that strikes me that I'm like, oh, never really thought about this. Jesus has taken great care to make preparation for this meal. For these people, Jesus is not usually one who makes reservations. Friday night, Andy and I went out to dinner and I wanted to try this new spot. And he's like, well, if that's one you want, will you just make us reservations? And it took me all of 32 seconds to find it, click, get confirmation. And then they started texting me too. It was too much, but it was not hard to make a reservation for us to go to this spot I had been wanting to try. 
Think about what it would have been for Jesus to make this preparation. And you know, Jesus is fine usually not making preparations. We see him often invited into people's home and he'll go. He'll often shock the host in some way, but he's often the one invited in. Or he'll make an impromptu picnic on a hill and feed 5,000, no problem. He doesn't need to plan a lot for that either. We don't see him being the one to make the preparations, but here, He has made preparations to make sure that they have a room prepared with his 12 who have been following him. And it's a big deal to Jesus that this happens at this time in this place, this tactile reminder linked to the sacrificial lamb. Now, all those theories I was talking about, the bread and the cup, the free will and all of that stuff. They have their proper place. But as N.T. Wright would say, theories have their proper place. But they weren't the main thing Jesus gave his followers. He gave them an act, a tangible act to perform. Specifically, he gave them a meal to share, right? Smell, taste, see, touch. It's a meal that speaks more volumes than any theory. Here's the thing that's really interesting about this. We don't know for sure on the timing, but the whole feast of unleavened bread, unleavened, we don't have time for the bread to rise. We got to get out of Israel, original Exodus. So it's the feast of unleavened bread. That's seven days. And on this day, the gospels tell us, this is the day when the sacrificial lamb would be uh, slaughtered. So it's towards the end of the festival. Interestingly, I can't totally prove this, but I do believe this to be true, as do a lot of people smarter than me. So the the Jewish day starts at sundown. So they're eating this day at sundown. And on this day, which would go till the next day's sundown, that was the day in which the sacrificial lamb needed to be slain. What was the day when uh, when Jesus was actually slain? When the rest of the Jewish people were slaying their lambs for the meal on Friday, what we call Good Friday, that was the moment of Jesus also being crucified. So we are the Thursday night before that moment and we're eating our unleavened bread knowing that we're in the day when the sacrificial lamb will be slaughtered in order to make us uh, lean into these promises of God. This is so deep-seated cultural significant for faithful Jews. The plan then, what is happening right now with Jesus and what is still to come. And who is there served this broken body and this spilled blood of Christ? Mr. Betrayal and Mr. Denial. You guys, they're both still at the table. They're both there. John's told us that their feet have been washed by Jesus. We hear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they have been given bread and cup. My body spilled, broken for you. My blood spilled for you. Even you, Judas, Even you, Peter, Mr. Betrayal and Mr. Denial, sit at this table at this moment, seeped in cultural significance with clean feet and full tummies with Jesus. They both have been served and Jesus knows every bit of their failure and he served them both still. Jesus could have waited. He, He could have done a different configuration. He could have done whatever he needed to. He fed and washed them both. He says, this is my body and represents it as he holds it breaking before them while he's still present. Watch my body break for you. I'm gonna give my body. I'm going to pour out my blood for you. He is making himself the sacrificial Passover lamb. When he takes the cup of wine, he gives thanks. That's the Greek word eucharistio. Ooh, I think I said that wrong, which we get the Eucharist from. Um, 
and he offers it to his disciples. So this is not something we do for Jesus. It reminds us what Jesus has done for us. And it becomes something we do with Jesus, participating with him every week we do this thing. And so this is this spiritual presence and significance we talk about. The apostle Paul would say it this way, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ? That's in his letter in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. This is a participation moment with Christ. With Christ, we participate. And Judas and Peter were part of this participation. They were there participating. And the thing that was just in my heart this week was thinking about Judas. He, we know later that he felt the weight of his betrayal. He felt the guilt and the shame. He tried to even give the money back and they wouldn't take it. Judas goes on and he hangs himself. He lets the shame win. He is so ashamed of his betrayal. He lets that win. He cannot accept the clean feet and body and blood given for him. Peter, we know, also feels the weight of his denial. Which gospel? Uh, We find out in, it's in Luke. Hold on. This moment breaks my heart in like such a um, humbling way. Because I, I mean, have you guys just ever messed up and then you make eye contact with the person and it just, you feel it in your gut? So remember, Jesus said, you're gonna betray me three times. And Peter, who's always impetuous, is like, nope, nope, never gonna do it. I'm gonna be with you till the end. And Jesus is like, nope, seriously, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny three times that you even know me. And then sure enough, one, two, three, he does it three times. And then after the last time when he says, man, I don't, know, I don't even know what you're talking about to the person who just asked him, do you know Jesus? At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times. And he went away and wept bitterly across the courtyard. Jesus has been beat up by this point and their eyes lock right as he just denied knowing him. You guys, he wept bitterly. He felt it too. Judas felt awful and tried to give back the money and just couldn't. The shame got him. Peter felt awful and ends up standing before the risen Lord and allows the healing to come. We see that too. He ends up becoming a humble, this impetuous, the guy who always uses the, I never will, I always will. This is the best. Everything is the biggest that it could be. He suddenly has a change of tune as you read Luke. He's this humble leader. Why? Because he faced Jesus and looked him in the eyes knowing he'd messed up. But then he received the forgiveness and he goes on to become an humble leader in the early church. So we look at these, both of these guys in our sandwich again, right? Betrayal and denial. They both are known by Jesus before they do their thing and they still are served the body and blood. And I think sometimes we rank one worse than the other. I think we sometimes do, or maybe I'm projecting, sometimes I do, because Peter goes on and is reinstated and Judas doesn't. But like, do we think Judas did the worst thing? You guys, they both totally whiffed. They just, they just whiffed on their Messiah, their friend, their Lord, their savior, their leader, their rabbi. They both messed up. Jesus is undeterred by both of them. He serves them both the body and blood, washes the feet. He loves them to the end. But Peter is willing to return from his failure and be restored. 
We hear in the gospel of John, John tells us about this moment when the risen Christ walks on the uh, shore with Peter and asks him three times, do you love me? And we believe that that three times, then feed my sheep. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. That three times is to represent just as many times as you let me down I let you cover that statement and solve it with a declaration of love and a commissioning to go therefore and feed my sheep. So I have a plan for you, Peter. Your three betrayals have been just as evenly covered up with your love. You're forgiven. Your feet are clean. Your tummy's full. It's been done and you're forgiven. So he gets this complete reinstatement, this restoration. But here's the other thing I see in the gospel of Luke that's so beautiful, because not only is Peter restored in right standing with Jesus, and he is, that is a really big deal. But in the gospel of Luke, we see that when he's telling Peter, by the way, this is going to happen. And Peter's like, no, 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 no way. So I'm going back just a hot second. Jesus knows he will be unable to resist the pressure to do this denial and to say this, but He says that a repentant Peter will then be in a position to strengthen others. We see this in uh, 22, 32. He says, Simon, Simon. Okay, so uh, Simon is Peter's other, that's Peter. Listen, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned back, repented, that's the repent, turn back from the, oops, I messed up, I'm going to turn back, strengthen your brothers. Sorry, I have a different version than what's up there, but it's the same thing. Once you have turned back, go and strengthen your brothers, strengthen the others. He has been put in a position to not just be restored. It will not be terminal like it was for Judas. Go on. And use what you've learned to strengthen the others in this truth. And so I just want to actually leave us with that thought. That this saving grace, this amazing grace that we sing about has been freely given to Mr. Betrayal and Mr. Denial. We may rank who is worse, but I would just put out there to you, I'm not sure that we're meant to do that. Instead, we may be able to learn from the fact that one let shame win. One, let the the lie and the temptation that the enemy is uh, given credit for putting these thoughts in both their heads in different gospel accounts, by the way. And that lie that, hey, you should betray, hey, you should deny, those different lies, one of them let the shame of the enemy win and the other one said, no, my feet are clean and my tummy is full with this meal that has been given to me by Christ for my restoration. And once I've repented, I can return and strengthen others because we're all going to mess it up along the way. Spoiler alert. But Peter knows this and he goes on throughout Acts and he lives out that way of humbly strengthening others as they all are trying to walk in the way of Jesus together. I want to read to you, we've talked about the deep history of what this means, the moment that Jesus is leaning into right here with the body and cup. But I want to read a moment of this sacrificial lamb in the promises of the future yet to come, the fullness that we also, as Christ followers, get to lean into. So I'm gonna read to you in Revelation 5, uh, the, um, John the seer says that in this moment when no one else could open the scroll of what was to come, he says, then I saw a lamb 
looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And he goes on and says that this slain lamb, the one who had been slain, we know that imagery now, was able to take the scroll and the people started to say songs and picking up in nine, they sang a new song. The people surrounding sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. You guys, we are in a place of waiting, of anticipation. Advent leans in on that idea of waiting and anticipation. But while we do, let's think about Peter. Let's think about Peter choosing to take the bread and the cup and to participate, participate in that Eucharist standing with Christ and go forward strengthening brothers in the name of Jesus who has done all of this and so much more. Jesus, we love you. The imagery of a slain lamb is um, sometimes hard for my modern sensibilities, um, but God, we just ask for the ability to lean in on imagery and cultures outside of our own so that we can see you communicating through the ages with your people in ways that will shape their lived imaginations because it shapes their lives, our lives through touch and smell and taste. May we taste and see that you are good. Jesus, we just ask that you would continue to move in our midst through the spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.